Book One, Chapter Fourteen of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book One, Poverty. Chapter Fourteen, Little Dorrit's Party. Arthur Clennam rose hastily, and saw her standing at the door. This history must sometimes see with Little Dorrit's eyes and shall begin that course by seeing him. Little Dorrit looked into a dim room, which seemed a spacious one to her, and grandly furnished. Courtly ideas of Covent Garden as a place with famous coffee-houses, where gentlemen wearing gold-laced coats and swords had quarrelled and fought duels, costly ideas of Covent Garden as a place where there were flowers in winter at guineas apiece, pineapples at guineas a pound, and peas at guineas a pint, picturesque ideas of Covent Garden as a place where there was a mighty theatre, showing wonderful and beautiful sights to richly dressed ladies and gentlemen, and which was for ever far beyond the reach of poor Fanny or poor Uncle, desolate ideas of Covent Garden as having all those arches in it, where the miserable children in rags, among whom she had just now passed, like young rats, slunk and hid, fed on offal, huddled together for warmth, and were hunted about. Look to the rats, young and old, all ye barnacles, for before God they are eating away at our foundations, and will bring the roofs on our heads. Teeming ideas of Covent Garden, as a place of past and present mystery, romance, abundance, want, beauty, ugliness, fair country gardens, and foul street gutters, all confused together, made the room dimmer than it was in Little Dorrit's eyes, as they timidly saw it from the door. At first in the chair before the gone-out fire, and then turned round wondering to see her, was the gentleman whom she sought, the brown, grave gentleman, who smiled so pleasantly, who was so frank and considerate in his manner, and yet in whose earnestness there was something that reminded her of his mother, with the great difference that she was earnest in asperity, and he in gentleness. Now he regarded her with that attentive and inquiring look, before which little Dorrit's eyes had always fallen, and before which they fell still. "'My poor child! Here at midnight?' "'I said, little Dorrit, sir, on purpose to prepare you. I knew you must be very much surprised.' "'Are you alone?' "'No, sir. I've got Maggie with me.' Considering her entrance sufficiently prepared for by this mention of her name, Maggie appeared from the landing outside, on the broad grin. She instantly suppressed that manifestation, however, and became fixedly solemn. "'And I have no fire,' said Clennam. "'And you are—' He was going to say, so lightly clad, but stopped himself in what would have been a reference to her poverty, saying instead, "'And it is so cold.' Putting the chair from which she had risen nearer to the grate, he made her sit down in it, and hurriedly, bringing wood and coal, heaped them together, and got ablaze. "'Your foot is, is like marble, my child.' He had happened to touch it, while stooping on one knee at his work of kindling the fire. "'Put it nearer the warmth.' Little Dorrit thanked him hastily. It was quite warm, it was very warm. It smote upon his heart to feel that she hid her thin, worn shoe. Little Dorrit was not ashamed of her poor shoes. He knew her story, and it was not that. Little Dorrit had a misgiving that he might blame her father if he saw them, 
that he might think, why did he dine to-day and leave this little creature to the mercy of the cold stones? She had no belief that it would have been a just reflection. She simply knew, by experience, that such delusions did sometimes present themselves to people. It was a part of her father's misfortunes that they did. "'Before I say anything else,' Little Dorrit began, sitting before the pale fire, and raising her eyes again to the face which, in its harmonious look of interest and pity and protection, she felt to be a mystery far above her in degree, and almost removed beyond her guessing at. "'May I tell you something, sir?' "'Yes, my child.' A slight shade of distress fell upon her, at his so often calling her a child. She was surprised that he should see it, or think of such a slight thing. But he said directly, "'I wanted a tender word, and could think of no other. As you just now gave yourself the name they gave you at my mother's, and as that is the name by which I always think of you, let me call you Little Dorrit.' "'Thank you, sir. I should like it better than any name.' "'Little Dorrit.' "'Little Mother.' Maggie, who had been falling asleep, put in, as a correction. "'It's all the same, Maggie,' returned Little Dorrit, "'all the same.' "'Is it all the same, Mother?' "'Just the same.' Maggie laughed, and immediately snored. In Little Dorrit's eyes and ears the uncouth figure and the uncouth sound were as pleasant as could be. There was a glow of pride in her big child, overspreading her face, when it again met the eyes of the grave brown gentleman. She wondered what he was thinking of as he looked at Maggie and her. She thought what a good father he would be. How, with some such look, he would counsel and cherish his daughter. "'What I was going to tell you, sir,' said Little Dorrit, "'is that my brother is at large.' Arthur was rejoiced to hear it, and hoped he would do well. "'And what I was going to tell you, sir,' said Little Dorrit, trembling in all her little figure and in her voice, "'is that I am not to know whose generosity released him, am never to ask, and am never to be told, and am never to thank that gentleman with all my grateful heart.' "'He would probably need no thanks,' Clennam said. "'Very likely he would be thankful himself, and with reason, "'that he had had the means and chance of doing a little service to her, "'who well deserved a great one.' "'And what I was going to say, sir, is,' said Little Dorrit, trembling more and more, "'that if I knew him, and, and I might,' I would tell him that he can never, never know how I feel his goodness, and how my good father would feel it. And what I was going to say, sir, is, that if I knew him, and I might, but I don't know him, and I must not, I know that I would tell him that I shall never any more lie down to sleep without having prayed to heaven to bless him and reward him, and if I knew him, and I might, I would go down on my knees to him, and take his hand, and kiss it, and ask him not to draw it away, but to leave it, oh, to leave it for a moment, 
and let my thankful tears fall on it, for I have no other thanks to give him. Little Dorrit had put his hand to her lips, and would have kneeled to him, but he gently prevented her, and replaced her in her chair. Her eyes, and the tones of her voice, had thanked him far better than she thought. He was not able to say, quite as composedly as usual, "'There, little Dorrit, there, there, there.' "'We will suppose that you did know this person, and that you might do all this, and that it was all done. And now, tell me, who am quite another person, who am nothing more than the friend who begged you to trust him? Why, you are out at midnight, and what it is that brings you so far through the streets at this late hour, my slight, delicate—child was on his lips again—little Dorrit. <clears throat> Maggie and I have been to-night, she answered, subduing herself with the quiet effort that had long been natural to her, to the theatre where my sister is engaged. Hello! Ain't it a heavenly place? suddenly interrupted Maggie, who seemed to have the power of going to sleep and waking up whenever she chose. Almost as good as a hospital, only there ain't no chicken in it. Here she shook herself and fell asleep again. We went there, said Little Dorrit, glancing at her charge, because I like sometimes to know, of my own knowledge, that my sister is doing well, and like to see her there with my own eyes, when neither she nor uncle is aware. It is very seldom indeed that I can do that, because when I am not out at work, I am with my father, and even when I am out at work, I hurry home to him, but I pretend to-night that I am at a party. As she made the confession, timidly hesitating, she raised her eyes to the face, and read its expression so plainly that she answered it. "'Oh, no, certainly, I never was at a party in my life.' She paused a little, under his attentive look, and then said, "'I hope there is no harm in it. I could never have been of any use if I had not pretended a little.' She feared that he was blaming her in his mind for so devising to contrive for them, think for them, and watch over them, without their knowledge or gratitude, perhaps even with their reproaches for supposed neglect. But what was really in his mind was the weak figure with its strong purpose, the thin worn shoes, the insufficient dress, and the pretense of recreation and enjoyment. He asked where the suppositious party was. At a place where she worked, answered Little Dorrit, blushing. She had said very little about it, only a few words to make her father easy. Her father did not believe it to be a grand party, indeed he might suppose that, and she glanced for an instant at the shawl she wore. "'It is the first night,' said Little Dorrit, "'that I have ever been away from home, and London looks so large, so barren, and so wild!' <sighs> In Little Dorrit's eyes its vastness under the black sky was awful. A tremor passed over her as she said the words. "'But this is not,' she added, with a quiet effort again, "'what I have come to trouble you with, sir. My sisters, having found a friend, 
a lady she has told me of, and made me rather anxious about, was the first cause of my coming away from home. And being away, and coming, on purpose, round by where you lived, and seeing a light in the window. Not for the first time, no, not for the first time. In little Dorrit's eyes, the outside of that window, had been a distant star on other nights than this. She had toiled out of her way, tired and troubled, to look up at it, and wonder about the grave, brown gentleman from so far off, who had spoken to her as a friend and protector. "'There were three things,' said Little Dorrit, "'that I thought I would like to say, if you were alone, and I might come upstairs. First, what I have tried to say, but, but never can, never shall—' "'Hush, hush! That is done with, and disposed of. Let us pass to the second, said Clennam, smiling her agitation away, making the blaze shine upon her, and putting wine and cake and fruit towards her on the table. "'I think,' said Little Dorrit, "'this is the second thing, sir. I think Mrs. Clennam must have found out my secret.' and must know where I come from, and where I go to—where I live, I mean." "'Indeed,' returned Clennam quickly. He asked her, after short consideration, why she supposed so. "'I think,' replied Little Dorrit, "'that Mr. Flintwinch must have watched me.' "'And why?' Clennam asked, as he turned his eyes upon the fire, bent his brows, and considered again. "'Why did she suppose that?' I have met him twice, both times near home, both times at night when I was going back, both times I thought, though that may easily be my mistake, that he hardly looked as if he had met me by accident. Did he say anything? No, he, he only nodded and put his head on one side. The devil take his head, mused Clennam, still looking at the fire. It's always on one side. He roused himself to persuade her to put some wine to her lips, and to touch something to eat. It was very difficult, she was so timid and shy, and then said, musing again, "'Is my mother at all changed to you?' "'Oh, not at all. She is just the same. I wondered whether I had better tell her my history. I wondered whether I might—I mean, whether you would like me to tell her. I wondered—' said Little Dorrit, looking at him in a suppliant way, and gradually withdrawing her eyes as he looked at her, "'Whether you would advise me what I ought to do?' "'Little Dorrit,' said Clennam, and the phrase had already begun, between these two, to stand for a hundred gentle phrases, according to the varying tone and connection in which it was used. "'Do nothing.' I will have some talk with my old friend Mrs. Affery. Do nothing, little Dorrit, except refresh yourself with such means as there are here. I entreat you to do that." "'Thank you. I'm not hungry, nor,' said little Dorrit, as he softly put her glass towards her, "'nor thirsty. I think Maggie might like something, perhaps.' "'We will make her find pockets presently, for all there is here.' said Clennam. But before we wake her, there was a third thing to say. Yes, 
you will not be offended, sir.' "'I promise that, unreservedly.' "'It will sound strange. I hardly know how to say it. Don't think it unreasonable or ungrateful in me,' said Little Dorrit, with returning and increasing agitation. "'No, no, no. I am sure it will be natural and right. I am not afraid that I shall put a wrong construction on it, whatever it is.' "'Thank you. You are coming back to see my father again?' "'Yes.' "'You have been so good and thoughtful as to write him a note, saying that you are coming to-morrow.' "'Oh, <laughs> that was nothing. Yes.' "'Can you guess?' said Little Dorrit, folding her small hands tight in one another, and looking at him with all the earnestness of her soul, looking steadily out of her eyes. "'What I am going to ask you not to do?' "'I think I can, but I may be wrong.' "'No, you are not wrong,' said Little Dorrit, shaking her head. "'If we should want it so very, very badly that we cannot do without it, let me ask you for it.' "'I will. I will.' "'Don't encourage him to ask. Don't understand him if he does ask. Don't give it to him. Save him and spare him that.' and you will be able to think better of him." Clennam said, not very plainly, seeing those tears glistening in her anxious eyes, that her wish should be sacred with him. "'You don't know what he is,' she said. "'You don't know what he really is. How can you, seeing him there all at once, dear love, and not gradually, as I have done?' You have been so good to us, so delicately and truly good, that I want him to be better in your eyes than in anybody's. And I cannot bear to think—cried Little Dorrit, covering her tears with her hands—I cannot bear to think that you, of all the world, should see him in his only moments of degradation. Pray said Clennam, do not be so distressed. Pray, pray, little Dorrit. This is quite understood now. Thank you, sir. Thank you. I have tried very much to keep myself from saying this. I have thought about it, days and nights. But when I knew for certain you were coming again, I made up my mind to speak to you. "'Not because I am ashamed of him,' she dried her tears quickly, "'but because I know him better than any one does, and love him, and am proud of him.' Relieved of this weight, Little Dorrit was nervously anxious to be gone. Maggie, being broad awake, and in the act of distantly gloating over the fruit and cakes with chuckles of anticipation— Clennam made the best diversion in his power, by pouring her out a glass of wine, which she drank in a series of loud smacks, putting her hand upon her windpipe after every one, and saying, breathless, with her eyes in a prominent state, "'Ah, oh, ain't it delicious! Ain't it hospitally!' When she had finished the wine, and these encomiums, he charged her to load her basket—she was never without her basket—with every eatable thing upon the table 
and to take a special care to leave no scrap behind. Maggie's pleasure in doing this, and her little mother's pleasure in seeing Maggie pleased, was as good a turn as circumstances could have given to the late conversation. "'But the gates will have been locked long ago,' said Clennam, suddenly remembering it. "'Where are you going?' "'I am going to Maggie's lodging,' answered Little Dorrit. "'I shall be quite safe, quite well taken care of.' "'I must accompany you there,' said Clennam. "'I cannot let you go alone.' "'Yes. Pray leave us to go there by ourselves. Pray do,' begged Little Dorrit. She was so earnest in the petition, that Clennam felt a delicacy in obtruding himself upon her, the rather because he could well understand that Maggie's lodging was of the obscurest sort. "'Come, Maggie,' said Little Dorrit cheerily, "'we shall do very well. We know the way by this time, Maggie.' "'Yes, yes, little mother, we know the way,' <laughs> chuckled Maggie, and away they went. Little Dorrit turned at the door to say, "'God bless you.' She said it very softly. Perhaps she may have been as audible above, who knows, as a whole cathedral choir. Arthur Clennam suffered them to pass the corner of the street before he followed at a distance not with any idea of encroaching a second time on little dorrit's privacy but to satisfy his mind by seeing her secure in the neighbourhood to which she was accustomed so diminutive she looked so fragile and defenceless against the bleak damp weather flitting along in the shuffling shadow of her charge that he felt in his compassion and in his habit of considering her a child apart from the rest of the rough world as if he would have been glad to take her up in his arms and carry her to her journey's end. In course of time she came into the leading thoroughfare, where the Marshalsea was, and when he saw them slacken their pace, and soon turn down a by-street, he stopped, felt that he had no right to go further, and slowly left them. He had no suspicion that they ran any risk of being houseless until morning, had no idea of the truth until long, long afterwards. But, said Little Dorrit, when they stopped at a poor dwelling all in darkness, and heard no sound on listening at the door, "'Now, this is a good lodging for you, Maggie, and we must not give offence. Consequently, we will only knock twice, and not very loud, and if we cannot wake them so, we must walk about till day.' Once Little Dorrit knocked with a careful hand, and listened. Twice. Little Dorrit knocked with a careful hand, and listened. All was close and still. "'Maggie, we must do the best we can, my dear. We must be patient, and wait for day.' It was a chill, dark night, with a damp wind blowing, when they came out into the leading street again, and heard the clocks strike half-past one. "'In only five hours and a half,' said Little Dorrit, "'we shall be able to go home.' To speak of home, and to go and look at it, it being so near, was a natural sequence. They went to the closed gate, and peeped through into the courtyard. "'I hope he is sound asleep,' said Little Dorrit, kissing one of the bars, "'and does not miss me.' The gate was so familiar, and so like a companion, that they put down Maggie's basket in a corner to serve for a seat, and keeping close together, rested there for some time. 
While the street was empty and silent, Little Dorrit was not afraid, but when she heard a footstep at a distance, or saw a moving shadow among the street-lamps, she was startled, and whispered, "'Maggie, I see someone. Come away.' Maggie would then wake up, more or less fretfully, and they would wander about a little, and come back again. As long as eating was a novelty, and an amusement, Maggie kept up pretty well. But that period going by, she became querulous about the cold, and shivered and whimpered. "'It will soon be over, dear,' said Little Dorrit patiently. "'Oh, it's all very fine for you, little mother,' returned Maggie. "'But I'm a poor thing, only ten years old.' At last, in the dead of the night, when the street was very still indeed, Little Dorrit laid the heavy head upon her bosom, and soothed her to sleep. And thus she sat at the gate, as it were, alone, looking up at the stars, and seeing the clouds pass over them in their wild flight, which was the dance at Little Dorrit's party. If it really was a party, she thought once, as she sat there, if it was light and warm and beautiful, and it was our house, and my poor dear was its master, and had never been inside these walls. And if Mr. Clennam was one of our visitors, and we were dancing to delightful music, and were as gay and light-hearted as ever we could be, I wonder—such a vista of wonder opened out before her, that she sat looking up at the stars, quite lost, until Maggie was querulous again, and wanted to get up and walk. Three o'clock, and half-past three, and they had passed over London Bridge. They had heard the rush of the tide against obstacles, and looked down, awed, through the dark vapour on the river, had seen little spots of lighted water where the bridge-lamps were reflected, shining like demon eyes, with a terrible fascination in them for guilt and misery. They had shrunk past homeless people, lying coiled up in nooks. They had run from drunkards. They had started from slinking men, whistling and signing to one another at by-corners, or running away at full speed, though everywhere the leader and the guide, little Dorrit, happy for once in her youthful appearance, feigned to cling to and rely upon Maggie. And more than once some voice, from among a knot of brawling or prowling figures in their path, had called out to the rest to let the woman and the child go by. So the woman and the child had gone by, and gone on and five had sounded from the steeples. They were walking slowly towards the east, already looking for the first pale streak of day, when a woman came after them. "'What are you doing with the child?' she said to Maggie. She was young, far too young to be there, heaven knows, and neither ugly nor wicked-looking. She spoke coarsely, but with no naturally coarse voice. There was even something musical in its sound. "'What are you doing with yourself?' retorted Maggie, for want of a better answer. "'Can't you see, without my telling you? I don't know as I can,' said Maggie. "'Killing myself. Now I've answered you, answer me. What are you doing with the child?' The supposed child kept her head drooped down, and kept her form close at Maggie's side. "'Poor thing,' said the woman, "'have you no feeling that you keep her out in the cruel streets at such a time as this? Have you no eyes 
that you don't see how delicate and slender she is have you no sense you don't look as if you had much that you don't take more pity on this cold and trembling little hand she had stepped across to that side and held the hand between her own too chafing it kiss a poor lost creature dear she said bending her face and tell me where she's taken you little dorrit turned towards her <gasps> why my god she said recoiling you're a woman don't mind that said little dorrit clasping one of her hands that had suddenly released hers i am not afraid of you then you had better be she answered have you no mother no no father yes a very dear one go home to him and be afraid of me let me go good night i must thank you first let me speak to you as if i really were a child you can't do it said the woman you're kind and innocent but you can't look at me out of a child's eyes i never should have touched you but i thought you were a child and with a strange wild cry she went away no day yet in the sky but there was day in the resounding stones of the streets in the wagons carts and coaches in the workers going to various occupations in the opening of early shops in the traffic at markets in the stir of the riverside there was coming day in the flaring lights with a feebler colour in them than they would have had at another time coming day in the increased sharpness of the air and the ghastly dying of the night they went back again to the gate intending to wait there now until it should be opened but the air was so raw and cold that little dorrit leading maggie about in her sleep kept in motion going round by the church she saw lights there and the door open and went up the steps and looked in who's that cried a stout old man who was putting on a nightcap as if he were going to bed in a vault it's no one particular sir said little dorrit stop cried the man let's have a look at you this caused her to turn back again in the act of going out and to present herself and her charge before him i thought so said he i know you we have often seen each other said little dorrit recognizing the sexton or the beadle or the verger or whatever he was when i have been at church here more than that we've got your birth in our register you know you're one of our curiosities indeed said little dorrit to be sure as the child of the by the by how did you get out so early we were shut out last night and are waiting to get in you don't mean it and there's another hour good yet come into the vestry you'll find a fire in the vestry on account of the painters i'm waiting for the painters or i shouldn't be here you may depend upon it one of our curiosities mustn't be cold when we have it in our power to warm her up comfortably come along he was a very good old fellow in his familiar way and having stirred the vestry fire he looked round the shelves of registers for a particular volume here you are you see he said 
taking it down and turning the leaves, "'here you'll find yourself as large as life. Amy, daughter of William and Fanny Dorrit, born Marshalsea Prison, parish of St. George. And we tell people that you have lived there without so much as a day's or a night's absence ever since. Is it true?' "'Quite true, till last night.' "'Lord!' But his surveying her with an admiring gaze suggested something else to him to wit. "'I am sorry to see, though, that you are faint and tired. Stay a bit. I'll get some cushions out of the church, and you and your friend shall lie down before the fire. Don't be afraid of not going in to join your father when the gate opens. I'll call you.' He soon brought in the cushions, and stood them on the ground. "'There you are, you see,' again as large as life. "'Oh, never mind thanking. I've daughters of my own, and though they weren't born in the Marshalsea prison, they might have been, if I had been in my ways of carrying on, of your father's breed. Stop a bit. I must put something under the cushion for your head. Here's a burial volume, just a thing. We've got Mrs. Bangham in this book.' But what makes these books interesting to most people is not who's in em, but who isn't. Who's coming, you know, and when? That's the interesting question. Commendingly looking back at the pillow he had improvised, he left them to their hour's repose. Maggie was snoring already, and little Dorrit was soon fast asleep, with her head resting on that sealed book of fate, untroubled by its mysterious blank leaves. This was little Dorrit's party. The shame, desertion, wretchedness, and exposure of the great capital. The wet, the cold, the slow hours, and the swift clouds of the dismal night. This was the party from which little Dorrit went home, jaded in the first grey mist of a rainy morning. End of Book One Chapter Fourteen Book One, Chapter Fifteen of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book One, Poverty. Chapter Fifteen. Mrs. Flintwinch has another dream. The debilitated old house in the city, wrapped in its mantle of suit, and leaning heavily on the crutches that had partaken of its decay and worn out with it, never knew a healthy or a cheerful interval, let what would betide. If the sun ever touched it, it was but with a ray, and that was gone in half an hour. If the moonlight ever fell upon it, it was only to put a few patches on its doleful cloak, and make it look more wretched. The stars, to be sure, coldly watched it, when the nights and the smoke were clear enough, and all bad weather stood by it with a rare fidelity. You should alike find rain, hail, frost, and thaw lingering in that dismal enclosure, when they had vanished from other places. And as to snow, you should see it there for weeks, long after it had changed from yellow to black, slowly weeping away its grimy life. The place had no other adherents. As to street noises, the rumbling of wheels in the lane merely rushed in at the gateway in going past, and rushed out again. 
making the listening Mistress Affery feel as if she were deaf, and recovered the sense of hearing by instantaneous flashes. So with whistling, singing, talking, laughing, and all pleasant human sounds, they leapt the gap in a moment, and went upon their way. The varying light of fire and candle in Mrs. Clennam's room made the greatest change that ever broke the dead monotony of the spot. In her two long narrow windows the fire shone sullenly all day, and sullenly all night. On rare occasions it flashed up passionately, as she did, but for the most part it was suppressed, like her, and preyed upon itself evenly and slowly. During many hours of the short winter days, however, when it was dusk there early in the afternoon, changing distortions of herself in her wheeled chair, of Mr. Flintwinch with his wry neck, of Mistress Affery coming and going, would be thrown upon the house-wall that was over the gateway, and would hover there like shadows from a great magic lantern. As the room-ridden invalid settled for the night, these would gradually disappear. Mistress Affery's magnified shadow, always flitting about, last, until it finally glided away into the air, as though she were off upon a witch-excursion. Then the solitary light would burn unchangingly, until it burned pale before the dawn, and at last died under the breath of Mrs. Affery as her shadow descended on it from the witch-region of sleep. Strange, if the little sick-room fire were in effect a beacon-fire, summoning someone, and at the most unlikely someone in the world, to the spot that must be come to. Strange, if the little sick-room light were in effect a watch-light, burning in that place every night until an appointed event should be watched out, which of the vast multitude of travellers, under the sun and the stars, climbing the dusty hills and toiling along the weary plains, journeying by land and journeying by sea, coming and going so strangely, to meet, and to act, and to react, on one another, which of the host may, with no suspicion of the journey's end, be travelling surely hither? Time shall show us. The post of honour, and the post of shame, the general's station, and the drummers, a peer's statue in Westminster Abbey, and a seaman's hammock in the bosom of the deep, the mitre and the workhouse, the woolsack and the gallows, the throne and the guillotine. The travellers to all are on the great high road, but it has wonderful divergencies, and only time shall show us whither each traveller is bound. On a wintry afternoon at twilight, Mrs. Flintwinch, having been heavy all day, dreamed this dream. She thought she was in the kitchen getting the kettle ready for tea, and was warming herself with her feet upon the fender, and the skirt of her gown tucked up, before the collapsed fire in the middle of the grate, bordered on either hand by a deep cold black ravine. She thought that as she sat thus, musing upon the question whether life was not for some people a rather dull invention, she was frightened by a sudden noise behind her. She thought that she had been similarly frightened once last week and the noise was of a mysterious kind, a sound of rustling, and of three or four quick beats like a rapid step, while a shock or tremble was communicated to her heart, as if the step had shaken the floor, or even as if she had been touched by some awful hand. She thought that this revived within her certain old fears of hers that the house was haunted, and that she flew up the kitchen stairs, without knowing how she got up, to be nearer company. 
Mistress Affery thought that on reaching the hall she saw the door of her liege lord's office standing open, and the room empty, that she went to the ripped-up window in the little room by the street door to connect her palpitating heart, through the glass, with living things beyond and outside the haunted house, that she then saw, on the wall over the gateway, the shadows of the two clever ones in conversation above that she then went upstairs with her shoes in her hand partly to be near the clever ones as a match for most ghosts and partly to hear what they were talking about none of your nonsense with me said mr flintwinch i won't take it from you mrs flintwinch dreamed that she stood behind the door which was just ajar and most distinctly heard her husband say these bold words flintwinch returned Mrs. Clennam in her usual strong low voice. "'There is a demon of anger in you. Guard against it.' "'I don't care whether there's one or a dozen,' said Mr. Flintwinch, forcibly suggesting in his tone that the higher number was nearer the mark. "'If there was fifty, they should all say, "'None of your nonsense with me. I won't take it from you. I'd make em say it.' whether they liked it or not. "'What have I done, you wrathful man?' her strong voice asked. "'Done?' said Mr. Flintwitch. "'Drop down upon me.' "'If you mean remonstrated with you—' "'Don't put words into my mouth that I don't mean,' said Jeremiah, sticking to his figurative expression with tenacious and impenetrable obstinacy. I mean, dropped down upon me. I remonstrated with you, she began again, because I won't have it, cried Jeremiah. You dropped down upon me. I dropped down upon you then, you ill-conditioned man, Jeremiah chuckled at having forced her to adopt his phrase for having been needlessly significant to Arthur that morning. I have a right to complain of it as almost a breach of confidence. You did not mean it. I won't have it, interposed the contradictory Jeremiah, flinging back the concession. I did mean it. I suppose I must leave you to speak in soliloquy if you choose, she replied, after a pause that seemed an angry one. It is useless my addressing myself to a rash and headstrong old man who has a set purpose not to hear me. Now, I won't take that from you either, said Jeremiah. I've no such purpose. I've told you I did mean it. Do you wish to know why I meant it, you rash and headstrong old woman? After all, you only restore me my own words she said, struggling with her indignation. Yes. This is why, then. Because you hadn't cleared his father to him, and you ought to have done it. Because before you went into any tantrum about yourself, who are— Hold there, Flintwinch! She cried out in a changed voice. You may go a word too far. The old man seemed to think so. There was another pause, and he had altered his position in the room when he spoke again more mildly. 
I was going to tell you why it was, because, before you took your own part, I thought you ought to have taken the part of Arthur's father. Arthur's father. I had no particular love for Arthur's father. I served Arthur's father's uncle in this house when Arthur's father was not much above me, was poorer as far as his pocket went, and when his uncle might as soon have left me his heir as have left him, he starved in the parlour, and I starved in the kitchen. That was the principal difference in our positions. There was not much more than a flight of breakneck stairs between us. I never took to him in those times. I don't know that I ever took to him greatly at any time. He was an undecided, irresolute chap, who had everything but his orphan life scared out of him when he was young. And when he brought you home here, the wife his uncle had named for him, I didn't need to look at you twice. You were a good-looking woman at that time, to know who'd be master. You have stood of your own strength ever since. Stand of your own strength now. Don't lean against the dead. I do not, as you call it, lean against the dead. But you had a mind to do it, if I had submitted, growled Jeremiah. And that's why you dropped down upon me. You can't forget that I didn't submit. I suppose you're astonished that I should consider it worth my while to have justice done to Arthur's father, eh? It doesn't matter whether you answer or not, because I know you are, and you know you are. Come, then, I'll tell you how it is. I may be a bit of an oddity in point of temper, but this is my temper. I can't let anybody have entirely their own way. You are a determined woman, and a clever woman, and when you see your purpose before you, nothing will turn you from it. Who knows that better than I do? Nothing will turn me from it, Flintwinch, when I have justified it to myself. Add that. Justified it to yourself? I said you were the most determined woman on the face of the earth, or I meant to say so. And if you are determined to justify any object you entertain, of course you'll do it. Man, I justify myself by the authority of these books, she cried with stern emphasis, and appearing from the sound that followed to strike the dead weight of her arm upon the table. Never mind that, returned Jeremiah calmly. We won't enter into that question at present. However that may be, you carry out your purposes, and you make everything go down before them. Now, I won't go down before them. I have been faithful to you, and useful to you, and I am attached to you. But I can't consent, and I won't consent, and I never did consent, and I never will consent, to be lost in you. Swallow up everybody else, and welcome. The peculiarity of my temper is, ma'am, that I won't be swallowed up alive. Perhaps this had originally been the mainspring of the understanding between them. Descrying thus much of force of character in Mr. Flintwinch, perhaps Mrs. Clennam had deemed alliance with him worth her while. Enough, and more than enough of the subject, 
said she gloomily. "'Unless you drop down upon me again,' returned the persistent Flintwinch, "'and then you must expect to hear of it again.' Mistress Affery dreamed that the figure of her lord here began walking up and down the room, as if to cool his spleen, and that she ran away but that as he did not issue forth when she had stood listening and trembling in the shadowy hall a little time she crept upstairs again impelled as before by ghosts and curiosity and once more cowered outside the door please to light the candle flintwinch mrs clennam was saying apparently wishing to draw him back into their usual tone it is nearly time for tea little dorrit is coming and will find me in the dark Mr. Flintwinch lighted the candle briskly, and said as he put it down upon the table, "'What are you going to do with little Dorrit? Is she to come to work here for ever? To come to tea here for ever? To come backwards and forwards here in the same way for ever? How can you talk about for ever to a maimed creature like me? Are we not all cut down like the grass of the field?' and was i not shorn by the scythe many years ago since when i have been lying here waiting to be gathered into the barn ay ay but since you've been lying here not near dead nothing like it numbers of children and young people blooming women strong men and what not have been cut down and carried and still here are you you see not much changed after all your time and mine may be a long one yet. When I say forever, I mean, though I am not poetical, through all our time. Mr. Flintwinch gave this explanation with great calmness, and calmly waited for an answer. So long as little Dorrit is quiet and industrious, and stands in need of the slight help I can give her, and deserves it, so long, I suppose, until she withdraws of her own act, she will continue to come here, I being spared. Nothing more than that, said Flintwinch, stroking his mouth and chin. What should there be more than that? What could there be more than that? She ejaculated in her sternly wondering way. Mrs. Flintwinch dreamed that, for the space of a minute or two, they remained looking at each other with the candle between them, and that she somehow derived an impression that they looked at each other fixedly. "'Do you happen to know, Mrs. Clennam?' Affery's liege lord then demanded in a much lower voice, and with an amount of expression that seemed quite out of proportion to the simple purpose of his words, "'Where she lives?' no would you now would you like to know said jeremiah with a pounce as if he had sprung upon her if i cared to know i should know already could i not have asked her any day then you don't care to know i do not mr flintwinch having expelled a long significant breath said with his former emphasis for i have accidentally mind found out where she lives said mrs clennam speaking in one unmodulated hard voice and separating her words as distinctly as if she were reading them off from separate bits of metal that she took up one by one 
she made a secret of it and she shall always keep her secret from me after all perhaps you would rather not have known the fact anyhow said jeremiah and he said it with a twist as if his words had come out of him in his own wry shape flintwinch said his mistress and partner flashing into a sudden energy that made affery start why do you goad me look round this room if it is any compensation for my long confinement within these narrow limits not that i complain of being afflicted you know i never complain of that if it is any compensation to me for long confinement to this room that while i am shut up from all pleasant change i am also shut up from the knowledge of some things that i may prefer to avoid knowing why should you of all men grudge me that belief oh, i don't grudge it to you returned jeremiah then say no more say no more let little dorrit keep her secret from me and do you keep it from me also let her come and go unobserved and unquestioned let me suffer and let me have what alleviation belongs to my condition is it so much that you torment me like an evil spirit i asked you a question that's all i have answered it so say no more say no more here the sound of the wheeled chair was heard upon the floor and affery's bell rang with a hasty jerk more afraid of her husband at the moment than of the mysterious sound in the kitchen affery crept away as lightly and as quickly as she could descended the kitchen stairs almost as rapidly as she had ascended them resumed her seat before the fire tucked up her skirt again and finally threw her apron over her head then the bell rang once more and then once more and then kept on ringing in despite of which importunate summons affery still sat behind her apron recovering her breath at last mr flintwinch came shuffling down the staircase into the hall muttering and calling affery woman all the way affery still remaining behind her apron he came stumbling down the kitchen stairs candle in hand sidled up to her twitched her apron off and roused her oh jeremiah cried affery waking what a start you gave me what have you been doing woman inquired jeremiah you've been rung for fifty times oh jeremiah said mistress affery i've been a-dreaming reminded of her former achievement in that way mr flintwinch held the candle to her head as if he had some idea of lighting her up for the illumination of the kitchen don't you know it's her tea-time he demanded with a vicious grin and giving one of the legs of mistress affery's chair a kick jeremiah tea-time i don't know what's come to me but i got such a dreadful turn jeremiah before i went off a-dreaming that i think it must be that Ugh, sleepy head said mr flintwinch what are you talking about such a strange noise jeremiah such a curious movement in the kitchen here just here jeremiah held up his light and looked at the blackened ceiling held down his light and looked at the damp stone floor turned round with his light and looked about at the spotted and blotched walls rats cats water 
drains,' said Jeremiah. Mistress Affery negatived each with a shake of her head. "'No, Jeremiah, I felt it before. I felt it upstairs, and once on the staircase, as I was going from her room to ours in the night, a rustle, and a sort of trembling touch behind me. "'Affery, my woman,' said Mr. Flintwinch grimly, after advancing his nose to that lady's lips as a test for the detection of spirituous liquors, "'If you don't get tea pretty quick, old woman, you'll become sensible of a rustle and a touch that will send you flying to the other end of the kitchen.' This prediction stimulated Mrs. Flintwinch to bestir herself, and to hasten upstairs to Mrs. Clennam's chamber. But, for all that, she now began to entertain a settled conviction that there was something wrong in the gloomy house. Henceforth she was never at peace in it, after daylight departed, and never went up or downstairs in the dark, without having her apron over her head, lest she should see something. What with these ghostly apprehensions, and her singular dreams, Mrs. Flintwinch fell that evening into a haunted state of mind, from which it may be long before this present narrative descries any trace of her recovery. In the vagueness and indistinctness of all her new experiences and perceptions, as everything about her was mysterious to herself, she began to be mysterious to others, and became as difficult to be made out to anybody's satisfaction as she found the house and everything in it difficult to make out to her own. She had not yet finished preparing Mrs. Clennam's tea, when the soft knock came to the door which always announced Little Dorrit. Mistress Affery looked on at Little Dorrit, taking off her homely bonnet in the hall, and at Mr. Flintwinch, scraping his jaws and contemplating her in silence, as expecting some wonderful consequence to ensue, which would frighten her out of her five wits, or blow them all three to pieces. After tea there came another knock at the door, announcing Arthur. Mistress Affery went down to let him in, and he said on entering, "'Affery, I am glad it's you. I want to ask you a question.' Affery immediately replied, "'Oh, for goodness sake, don't ask me nothing, Arthur. I'm frightened out of one half of me life, and dreamed out of the other. Don't ask me nothing. I don't know which is which, or what is what.' And immediately started away from him, and came near him no more. Mistress Affery, having no taste for reading, and no sufficient light for needlework in the subdued room, supposing her to have the inclination, now sat every night in the dimness from which she had momentarily emerged on the evening of Arthur Clennam's return, occupied with crowds of wild speculations and suspicions respecting her mistress and her husband and the noises in the house. When the ferocious devotional exercises were engaged in, these speculations would distract Mistress Affery's eyes towards the door as if she expected some dark form to appear at those propitious moments, and make the party one too many. Otherwise, Affery never said or did anything to attract the attention of the two clever ones towards her in any marked degree, except on certain occasions, generally at about the quiet hour towards bedtime, when she would suddenly dart out of her dim corner, and whisper with a face of terror to Mr. Flintwinch, reading the paper near Mrs. Clennam's little table, "'There!' "'Jeremiah, now, what's that noise?' Then the noise, if there were any, would have ceased, and Mr. Flintwinch would snarl, turning upon her as if she cut him down that moment against his will, 
and for the old woman you shall have a doze old woman such a doze you have been dreaming again end of book one chapter fifteen Book One, Chapter Sixteen of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book One, Poverty. Chapter Sixteen, Nobody's Weakness. The time being come for the renewal of his acquaintance with the Meagles family. Clennam, pursuant to contract made between himself and Mr. Meagles, within the precincts of Bleeding Heart Yard, turned his face, on a certain Saturday, towards Twickenham, where Mr. Meagles had a cottage residence of his own. The weather being fine and dry, and any English road abounding in interest for him who had been so long away, he sent his valise on by the coach, and set out to walk. A walk was in itself a new enjoyment to him and one that had rarely diversified his life afar off. He went by Fulham and Putney, for the pleasure of strolling over the heath. It was bright and shining there, and when he found himself so far on his road to Twickenham, he found himself a long way on his road to a number of airier and less substantial destinations. They had risen before him fast, in the healthful exercise and the pleasant road. It is not easy to walk alone in the country without musing upon something and he had plenty of unsettled subjects to meditate upon, though he had been walking to the land's end. First, there was the subject seldom absent from his mind, the question what he was to do henceforth in life, to what occupation he should devote himself, and in what direction he had best seek it. He was far from rich, and every day of indecision and inaction made his inheritance a source of greater anxiety to him as often as he began to consider how to increase this inheritance or to lay it by so often his misgiving that there was some one with an unsatisfied claim upon his justice returned and that alone was a subject to outlast the longest walk again there was the subject of his relations with his mother which were now upon an equable and peaceful but never confidential footing and whom he saw several times a week little dorrit was a leading and a constant subject for the circumstances of his life united to those of her own story presented the little creature to him as the only person between whom and himself there were ties of innocent reliance on one hand and affectionate protection on the other ties of compassion respect unselfish interest gratitude and pity thinking of her and of the possibility of her father's release from prison by the unbarring hand of death the only change of circumstance he could foresee that might enable him to be such a friend to her as he wished to be, by altering her whole manner of life, smoothing her rough road, and giving her a home, he regarded her in that perspective as his adopted daughter, his poor child of the marshalsea hushed to rest. If there were a last subject in his thoughts, and it lay towards Twickenham, its form was so indefinite that it was little more than the pervading atmosphere in which these other subjects floated before him. He had crossed the heath, and was leaving it behind, when he gained upon a figure which had been in advance of him for some time, and which, as he gained upon it, he thought he knew. He derived this impression from something in the turn of the head, 
and in the figure's action of consideration as it went on at a sufficiently sturdy walk. But when the man, for it was a man's figure, pushed his hat up at the back of his head, and stopped to consider some object before him, he knew it to be Daniel Doyce. "'How do you do, Mr. Doyce?' said Clennam, overtaking him. "'I am glad to see you again, and in a healthier place than the circumlocution office.' "'Ah, Master Meagle's friend!' exclaimed that public criminal, coming out of some mental combinations he had been making and offering his hand. "'I am glad to see you, sir. Will you excuse me if I forget your name?' "'Readily. It's not a celebrated name. It's not Barnacle.' <laughs> "'No, no,' said Daniel, laughing. "'Ah, and now I know what it is. It's Clenum.' "'How do you do, Mr. Clenum?' "'I have some hope,' said Arthur, as they walked on together, "'that we may be going to the same place, Mr. Doyce.' "'Meaning Twickenham,' returned Daniel. "'I am glad to hear it.' They were soon quite intimate, and lightened the way with a variety of conversation. The ingenious culprit was a man of great modesty and good sense, and though a plain man, had been too much accustomed to combine what was original and daring in conception with what was patient and minute in execution, to be by any means an ordinary man. It was at first difficult to lead him to speak about himself, and he put off Arthur's advances in that direction by admitting slightly, oh yes, he had done this, and he had done that, and such a thing was of his making, and such another thing was his discovery, but it was his trade, you see, his trade until, as he gradually became assured that his companion had a real interest in his account of himself, he frankly yielded to it. Then it appeared that he was the son of a north-country blacksmith, and had originally been apprenticed by his widowed mother to a lockmaker, that he had struck out a few little things at the lockmaker's, which had led to his being released from his indentures with a present, which present had enabled him to gratify his ardent wish to bind himself to a working engineer, under whom he had laboured hard, learned hard, and lived hard seven years. His time being out, he had worked in the shop at weekly wages seven or eight years more, and had then betaken himself to the banks of the Clyde, where he had studied, and filed, and hammered, and improved his knowledge, theoretical and practical, for six or seven years more. There he had had an offer to go to Lyons, which he had accepted and from Lyons he had been engaged to go to Germany, and in Germany had had an offer to go to St. Petersburg, and there had done very well indeed, never better. However, he had naturally felt a preference for his own country, and a wish to gain distinction there, and to do whatever service he could, there rather than somewhere else. And so he had come home, and so at home he had established himself in business, and had invented, and executed, and worked his way on, until, after a dozen years of constant suit and service, he had been enrolled in the great British Legion of Honour, the Legion of the Rebuffed of the Circumlocution Office, and had been decorated with the great British Order of Merit, the Order of the Disorder of the Barnacles and Stilt-Stalkings. "'It is much to be regretted,' said Clennam, "'that you ever turned your thoughts that way, Mr. Doyce.' "'True, sir, true to a certain extent. But what is a man to do? If he has the misfortune to strike out something serviceable to the nation, he must follow where it leads him, 
"'Hadn't he better let it go?' said Clennam. "'He can't do it,' said Doyce, shaking his head with a thoughtful smile. "'It's not put into his head to be buried. It's put into his head to be made useful. You hold your life on the condition that to the last you shall struggle hard for it. Every man holds a discovery on the same terms.' "'That is to say,' said Arthur, with a growing admiration of his quiet companion, "'You are not finally discouraged, even now?' "'I have no right to be, if I am,' returned the other. "'The thing is as true as it ever was.' When they had walked a little way in silence, Clennam, at once to change the direct point of their conversation, and not to change it too abruptly, asked Mr. Doyce if he had any partner in his business to relieve him of a portion of its anxieties. "'No,' he returned. "'Not at present. I had when I first entered on it, and a good man he was. But he has been dead some years, and as I could not easily take to the notion of another when I lost him, I bought his share for myself, and have gone on by myself ever since. And here's another thing,' he said, stopping for a moment, with a good-humoured laugh in his eyes, and laying his closed right hand with its peculiar suppleness of thumb on Clennam's arm, no inventor can be a man of business, you know. No, said Clennam. Why, so the men of business say, he answered, resuming the walk and laughing outright. <laughs> I don't, I don't know why we unfortunate creatures should be supposed to want common sense, but it is generally taken for granted that we do. Even the best friend I have in the world, our excellent friend over yonder, said Doyce, nodding towards Twickenham, extends a sort of protection to me, don't you know, as a man not quite able to take care of himself. Arthur Clennam could not help joining in the good-humoured laugh, for he recognised the truth of the description. So, I find that I must have a partner who is a man of business and not guilty of any inventions, said Daniel Doyce, taking off his hat to pass his hand over his forehead. "'if it's only in deference to the current opinion, "'and to uphold the credit of the works. "'I don't think he'll find that I have been very remiss or confused "'in my way of conducting them, "'but that's for him to say, whoever he is, not for me.' "'You have not chosen him yet, then?' "'No, sir, no. "'I have only just come to a decision to take one. "'The fact is, there's more to do than there used to be, and the works are enough for me as I grow older. What with the books and correspondence and foreign journeys for which a principal is necessary, I can't do it all. I am going to talk over the best way of negotiating the matter, if I find a spare hour between this and Monday morning with my, <laughs> my nurse protector, said Doyce, with laughing eyes again. "'He is a sagacious man in business, and has a good apprenticeship to it.' After this they conversed on different subjects until they arrived at their journey's end. A composed and unobtrusive self-sustainment was noticeable in Daniel Doyce, a calm knowledge that what was true must remain true, in spite of all the barnacles in the family ocean, and would be just the truth, and neither more nor less, when even that sea had run dry, which had a kind of greatness in it, though not of the official quality. As he knew the house well, he conducted Arthur to it by the way that showed it to the best advantage. It was a charming place, 
none the worse for being a little eccentric, on the road by the river, and just what the residence of the Meagles family ought to be. It stood in a garden, no doubt as fresh and beautiful in the May of the year as Pet now was in the May of her life, and it was defended by a goodly show of handsome trees and spreading evergreens, as Pet was by Mr. and Mrs. Meagles. It was made out of an old brick house, of which a part had been altogether pulled down, and another part had been changed into the present cottage. So there was a hale elderly portion, to represent Mr. and Mrs. Meagles, and a young picturesque, very pretty portion, to represent Pet. There was even the later addition of a conservatory sheltering itself against it, uncertain of hue in its deep-stained glass, and in its more transparent portions, flashing to the sun's rays now like fire and now like harmless water-drops, which might have stood for Tatty Coram. Within view was the peaceful river and the ferry-boat, to moralise to all the inmates, saying, Young or old, passionate or tranquil, chafing or content, you, thus runs the current always. Let the heart swell into what discord it will, thus plays the rippling water on the prow of the ferry-boat ever the same tune. Year after year, so much allowance for the drifting of the boat, so many miles an hour the flowing of the stream, here the rushes, there the lilies, nothing uncertain or unquiet upon this road that steadily runs away, while you, upon your flowing road of time, are so capricious and distracted. The bell at the gate had scarcely sounded when Mr. Meagles came out to receive them. Mr. Meagles had scarcely come out when Mrs. Meagles came out. Mrs. Meagles had scarcely come out when Pet came out. Pet scarcely had come out when Tatty Coram came out. Never had visitors a more hospitable reception. "'Here we are, you see,' said Mr. Meagles, "'boxed up, Mr. Clennam, within our own home limits, as if we were never going to expand, that is, a travel again.' Not like Marseille, eh? <laughs> no a-longing and marshonging here. A different kind of beauty, indeed," said Clennam, looking about him. But Lord bless me," cried Mr. Meagles, rubbing his hands with a relish. "It was an uncommonly pleasant thing being in quarantine, wasn't it? Do you know I've often wished myself back again? We were a capital party." This was Mr. Meagles's invariable habit, always to object to everything while he was travelling, and always to want to get back to it when he was not travelling. "'If it was summer-time,' said Mr. Meagles, "'which I wish it was on your account, in order that you might see the place at its best, you would hardly be able to hear yourself speak for birds. Being practical people, we never allow anybody to scare the birds.' and the birds, being practical people too, come about us in myriads. We are delighted to see you, Clennam. If you'll allow me, I shall drop the mister. I heartily assure you, we are delighted." "'I have not had so pleasant a greeting,' said Clennam. Then he recalled what little Dorrit had said to him in his own room, and faithfully added, "'Except once.' since we last walked to and fro, looking down at the Mediterranean. "'Ah!' returned Mr. Meagles. "'Something like a look-out that was, wasn't it? 
I don't want a military government, but I shouldn't mind a little a-longing and ma-shonging, just a dash of it, in this neighbourhood sometimes. It's devilish still. Bestowing this eulogium on the retired character of his retreat, with a dubious shake of the head, Mr. Meagles led the way into the house. It was just large enough, and no more, was as pretty within as it was without, and was perfectly well arranged and comfortable. Some traces of the migratory habits of the family were to be observed in the covered frames and furniture, and wrapped-up hangings, but it was easy to see that it was one of Mr. Meagles's whims to have the cottage always kept, in their absence, as if they were always coming back the day after to-morrow. Of articles collected on his various expeditions, there was such a vast miscellany that it was like the dwelling of an amiable corsair. There were antiquities from central Italy, made by the best modern houses in that department of industry, bits of mummy from Egypt, and perhaps Birmingham, model gondolas from Venice, model villages from Switzerland, morsels of tessellated pavement from Herculaneum and Pompeii, like petrified minced veal, ashes out of tombs and lava out of Vesuvius, Spanish fans, Spezian straw hats, Moorish slippers, Tuscan hairpins, Carrara sculpture, Trastevarini scarves, Genoese velvets and filigree, Neapolitan coral, Roman cameos, Geneva jewellery, Arab lanterns, rosaries blessed all round by the Pope himself, and an infinite variety of lumber. There were views, like and unlike, of a multitude of places, and there was one little picture-room devoted to a few of the regular sticky old saints, with sinews like whipcord, hair like Neptunes, wrinkles like tattooing, and such coats of varnish that every holy personage served for a fly-trap, and became what is now called in the vulgar tongue a catch-em-alive-o. Of these pictorial acquisitions Mr. Meagles spoke in the usual manner. He was no judge, he said, except of what pleased him. He had picked them up, dirt cheap, and people had considered them rather fine. One man, who at any rate ought to know something of the subject, had declared that sage reading, especially oily old gentleman in a blanket, with a swan's down tippet for a beard, and a web of cracks all over him, like rich pie-crust, to be a fine Jacino. As for Sebastian del Piombo, there, you would judge for yourself, if it were not his later manner, the question was, who was it? Titian? That might, or might not be, perhaps he had only touched it. Daniel Doyce said perhaps he hadn't touched it, but Mr. Meagles rather declined to overhear the remark. When he had shown all his spoils, Mr. Meagles took them into his own snug room overlooking the lawn, which was fitted up in part like a dressing-room, and in part like an office, and in which, upon a kind of counter-desk, were a pair of brass scales for weighing gold, and a scoop for shovelling out money. "'Here they are, you see,' said Mr. Meagles. "'I stood behind these two articles five and thirty years running, when I had no more thought of gadding about than I now think of staying at home. When I left the bank for good, I asked for them, and brought them away with me. I mention it at once, or you might suppose that I sit in my counting-house, as pet says I do, like the king in the poem of the four-and-twenty blackbirds, counting out my money." Clennam's eyes had strayed to a natural picture on the wall of two pretty little girls with their arms entwined. "'Yes, Clennam,' 
said Mr. Meagles, in a lower voice, "'there they both are. It was taken some seventeen years ago. As I often say to mother, they were babies then.' "'Their names?' said Arthur. "'Ah, to be sure. You have never heard any name but Pet. Pet's name is Minnie. Her sister's Lily.' "'Should you have known, Mr. Clennam, that one of them was meant for me?' asked Pet herself, now standing in the doorway. "'I might have thought that both of them were meant for you. Both are still so like you.' "'Indeed,' said Clennam, glancing from the fair original to the picture and back, "'I cannot even now say which is not your portrait.' "'Do you hear that, mother?' cried Mr. Meagles to his wife who had followed her daughter. "'It's always the same. Clennam, nobody can decide. The child to your left is Pet.' The picture happened to be near a looking-glass. As Arthur looked at it again, he saw, by the reflection of the mirror, Tatty Coram stop in passing outside the door, listen to what was going on, and pass away with an angry and contemptuous frown upon her face that changed its beauty into ugliness. "'But come,' said Mr. Meagles, "'you have had a long walk, and will be glad to get your boots off. As to Daniel here, I suppose he'd never think of taking his boots off, unless we showed him a boot-jack.' "'Why not?' asked Daniel, with a significant smile at Clennam. "'Oh, you have so many things to think about,' returned Mr. Meagles, clapping him on the shoulder as if his weakness must not be left to itself on any account. Figures, and wheels, and cogs, and levers, and screws, and cylinders, and a thousand things. "'In my calling,' said Daniel, amused, "'the greater usually includes the less. But never mind, never mind, whatever pleases you, pleases me.' Clennam could not help speculating, as he seated himself in his room by the fire, whether there might be in the breast of this honest, affectionate, and cordial Mr. Meagles any microscopic portion of the mustard-seed that had sprung up into the great tree of the circumlocution office. His curious sense of a general superiority to Daniel Doyce, which seemed to be founded not so much on anything in Doyce's personal character as on the mere fact of his being an originator, and a man out of the beaten track of other men, suggested the idea. It might have occupied him until he went down to dinner, an hour afterwards, if he had not had another question to consider, which had been in his mind so long ago as before he was in quarantine at Marseilles, and which had now returned to it, and was very urgent with it. No less a question than this, whether he should allow himself to fall in love with Pet. He was twice her age, he changed the leg he had crossed over the other, and tried the calculation again, but could not bring out the total at less. He was twice her age. Well, he was young in appearance, young in health and strength, young in heart. A man was certainly not old at forty, and many men were not in circumstances to marry, or did not marry, until they had attained that time of life. On the other hand, the question was not what he thought of the point, but what she thought of it. He believed that Mr. Meagles was disposed to entertain a ripe regard for him, and he knew that he had a sincere regard for Mr. Meagles and his good wife. 
he could foresee that to relinquish this beautiful only child of whom they were so fond to any husband would be a trial of their love which perhaps they never had yet the fortitude to contemplate but the more beautiful and winning and charming she the nearer they must always be to the necessity of approaching it and why not in his favour as well as in another's when he had got so far it came again into his head that the question was not what they thought of it but what she thought of it arthur clennam was a retiring man with a sense of many deficiencies and he so exalted the merits of the beautiful minnie in his mind and depressed his own that when he pinned himself to this point his hopes began to fail him he came to the final resolution as he made himself ready for dinner that he would not allow himself to fall in love with pet there were only five at a round table and it was very pleasant indeed they had so many places and people to recall and they were all so easy and cheerful together daniel doyce either sitting out like an amused spectator at cards or coming in with some shrewd little experiences of his own when it happened to be to the purpose that they might have been together twenty times and not have known so much of one another and miss wade said mr meagles after they had recalled a number of fellow-travellers has anybody seen miss wade i have said tatty coram she had brought a little mantle which her young mistress had sent for and was bending over her putting it on when she lifted up her dark eyes and made this unexpected answer tatty her young mistress exclaimed you seen miss wade where here miss said tatty coram how an impatient glance from tatty coram seemed as clennam saw it to answer with my eyes but her only answer in words was i met her near the church what was she doing there i wonder said mr meagles not going to it i should think she had written to me first said tatty coram oh tatty murmured her mistress take your hands away i feel as if someone else was touching me she said it in a quick involuntary way but half playfully and not more petulantly or disagreeably than a favourite child might have done who laughed next moment tatty coram set her full red lips together and crossed her arms upon her bosom did you wish to know sir she said looking at mr meagles what miss wade wrote to me about well tatty coram returned mr meagles since you ask the question and we are all friends here perhaps you may as well mention it if you are so inclined she knew when we were travelling where you lived said tatty coram and she had seen me not quite not quite not quite in a good temper tatty coram suggested mr meagles shaking his head at the dark eyes with a quiet caution take a little time count five and twenty tatty coram she pressed her lips together again and took a long deep breath so she wrote to me to say that if i ever felt myself hurt she looked down at her young mistress or found myself worried she looked down at her again i might go to her and be considerately treated i was to think of it and could speak to her by the church so i went there to thank her tatty said her young mistress putting her hand up over her shoulder that the other might take it miss wade 
almost frightened me when we parted, and I scarcely like to think of her just now as having been so near me without my knowing it, Tatty dear.' Tatty stood for a moment immovable. "'Hey!' cried Mr. Meagles. "'Count another five-and-twenty, Tatty Gorham.' She might have counted a dozen when she bent and put her lips to the caressing hand. It patted her cheek as it touched the owner's beautiful curls, and Tatty Coram went away. "'Now there,' said Mr. Meagles softly, as he gave a turn to the dumb-waiter on his right hand to twirl the sugar towards himself, "'there's a girl who might be lost and ruined if she wasn't among practical people.' Mother and I know, solely from being practical, that there are times when that girl's whole nature seems to roughen itself against seeing us so bound up in pet. No father and mother were bound up in her, poor soul. I don't like to think of the way in which that unfortunate child, with all that passion and protest in her, feels when she hears the fifth commandment on a Sunday. I am always inclined to call out, Church! count five-and-twenty, Tatty Coram. Besides his dumb-waiter, Mr. Meagles had two other not-dumb-waiters in the persons of two parlour-maids, with rosy faces and bright eyes, who were a highly ornamental part of the table decoration. "'And why not, you see?' said Mr. Meagles on this head. "'As I always say to mother, why not have something pretty to look at, if you have anything at all?' A certain Mrs. Ticket, who was cook and housekeeper when the family were at home, and housekeeper only when the family were away, completed the establishment. Mr. Meagles regretted that the nature of the duties in which she was engaged rendered Mrs. Ticket unpresentable at present, but hoped to introduce her to the new visitor to-morrow. She was an important part of the cottage, he said, and all his friends knew her. That was her picture up in the corner. When they went away, she always put on the silk gown, and the jet-black row of curls represented in that portrait—her hair was reddish-grey in the kitchen—established herself in the breakfast-room, put her spectacles between two particular leaves of Dr. Buchan's domestic medicine, and sat looking over the blind all day, until they came back again. It was supposed that no persuasion could be invented which would induce Mrs. Ticket to abandon her post at the blind, however long their absence or to dispense with the attendance of Dr. Buchan. The lucubrations, of which learned practitioner Mr. Meagles implicitly believed, she had never yet consulted to the extent of one word in her life. In the evening they played an old-fashioned rubber, and Pet sat looking over her father's hand, or singing to herself by fits and starts at the piano. She was a spoilt child, but how could she be otherwise? Who could be much with so pliable and beautiful a creature, and not yield to her endearing influence? Who could pass an evening in the house, and not love her for the grace and charm of her very presence in the room? This was Clennam's reflection, notwithstanding the final conclusion at which he had arrived upstairs. In making it, he revoked, "'Why, what are you thinking of, my good sir?' asked the astonished Mr. Meagles, who was his partner. "'I beg your pardon. Nothing,' returned Clennam. "'Think of something next time, that's a dear fellow,' said Mr. Meagles. Pat laughingly believed he had been thinking of Miss Wade. "'Why of Miss Wade, Pat?' asked her father. "'Why, indeed,' said Arthur Clennam. Pat coloured a little, and went to the piano again. 
As they broke up for the night, Arthur overheard Doyce ask his host if he could give him half an hour's conversation before breakfast in the morning. The host replying willingly, Arthur lingered behind a moment, having his own word to add to that topic. "'Mr. Meagles,' he said on their being left alone, "'do you remember when you advised me to go straight to London?' "'Perfectly well.' and when you gave me some other good advice which i needed at that time i won't say what it was worth answered mr meagles but of course i remember our being very pleasant and confidential together i have acted on your advice and having disembarrassed myself of an occupation that was painful to me for many reasons wish to devote myself and what means i have to another pursuit Right. "'You can't do it too soon,' said Mr. Meagles. "'Now, as I came down to-day, I found that your friend, Mr. Doyce, is looking for a partner in his business, not a partner in his mechanical knowledge, but in the ways and means of turning the business arising from it to the best account.' "'Just so,' said Mr. Meagles, with his hands in his pockets, and with the old business expression of face that had belonged to the scales and scoop. Mr. Doyce mentioned, incidentally, in the course of our conversation, that he was going to take your valuable advice on the subject of finding such a partner. If you should think our views and opportunities at all likely to coincide, perhaps you will let him know my available position. I speak, of course, in ignorance of the details, and they may be unsuitable on both sides. No doubt, no doubt said Mr. Meagles, with a caution belonging to the scales and scoop. But they will be a question of figures and accounts. Just so, just so, said Mr. Meagles, with arithmetical solidity belonging to the scales and scoop. And I shall be glad to enter into the subject, provided Mr. Doyce responds, and you think well of it, if you will at present, therefore, allow me to place it in your hands. You will much oblige me. Clennam, I accept the trust with readiness, said Mr. Meagles, and, without anticipating any of the points which you, as our man of business, have of course reserved, I am free to say to you that I think something may come of this. Of one thing you may be perfectly certain. Daniel is an honest man. I am so sure of it that I have promptly made up my mind to speak to you. You must guide him, you know. You must steer him. You must direct him. He is one of a crotchety sort, said Mr. Meagles, evidently meaning nothing more than that he did new things and went new ways. But he is as honest as the sun, and so good-night. Clennam went back to his room, sat down again before his fire, and made up his mind that he was glad he had resolved not to fall in love with Pet. She was so beautiful, so amiable, so apt to receive any true impression given to her gentle nature and her innocent heart, and make the man who should be so happy as to communicate it the most fortunate and enviable of all men, that he was very glad indeed he had come to that conclusion. But, as this might have been a reason for coming to the opposite conclusion, he followed out the theme again a little way in his mind, to justify himself, perhaps. 
Suppose that a man, so his thoughts ran, who had been of age some twenty years or so, who was a diffident man, from the circumstances of his youth, who was rather a grave man, from the tenor of his life, who knew himself to be deficient in many little engaging qualities which he admired in others, from having been long in a distant region, with nothing softening near him, who had no kind sisters to present to her, who had no congenial home to make her known in, who was a stranger in the land, who had not a fortune to compensate, in any measure, for these defects, who had nothing in his favour but his honest love and his general wish to do right. Suppose such a man were to come to this house, and were to yield to the captivation of this charming girl, and were to persuade himself that he could hope to win her, what a weakness it would be! He softly opened his window, and looked out upon the serene river. Year after year, so much allowance for the drifting of the ferry-boat, so many miles an hour the flowing of the stream, here the rushes, there the lilies, nothing uncertain or unquiet. Why should he be vexed or sore at heart? It was not his weakness that he had imagined. It was nobody's, nobody's within his knowledge. Why should it trouble him? And yet it did trouble him. And he thought, who has not thought for a moment, sometimes, that it might be better to flow away monotonously like the river, and to compound for its insensibility to happiness, with its insensibility to pain. End of Book One, Chapter Sixteen. Book One, Chapter Seventeen of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book One, Poverty. Chapter Seventeen, Nobody's Rival. Before breakfast in the morning, Arthur walked out to look about him. As the morning was fine, and he had an hour on his hands, he crossed the river by the ferry, and strolled along a footpath through some meadows. When he came back to the towing-path, he found the ferry-boat on the opposite side, and a gentleman hailing it, and waiting to be taken over. This gentleman looked barely thirty. He was well-dressed, of a sprightly and gay appearance, a well-knit figure, and a rich dark complexion. As Arthur came over the stile and down to the water's edge, the lounger glanced at him for a moment, and then resumed his occupation of idly tossing stones into the water with his foot. There was something in his way of spurning them out of their places with his heel, and getting them into the required position, that Clennam thought had an air of cruelty in it. Most of us have more or less frequently derived a similar impression from man's manner of doing some very little thing plucking a flower, clearing away an obstacle, or even destroying an insentient object. The gentleman's thoughts were preoccupied, as his face showed, and he took no notice of a fine Newfoundland dog, who watched him attentively, and watched every stone, too, in its turn, eager to spring to the river on receiving his master's sign. The ferry-boat came over, however, without his receiving any sign, and when it grounded his master took him by the collar, and walked him into it. "'Not this morning,' he said to the dog. "'You won't do for ladies' company dripping wet. Lie down.' Clennam followed the man and the dog into the boat, and took his seat. 
the dog did as he was ordered. The man remained standing, with his hands in his pockets, and towered between Clennam and the prospect. Man and dog both jumped lightly out as soon as they touched the other side, and went away. Clennam was glad to be rid of them. The church clock struck the breakfast hour as he walked up the little lane by which the garden gate was approached. The moment he pulled the bell, a deep, loud barking assailed him from within the wall. "'I heard no dog last night,' thought Clennam. The gate was opened by one of the rosy maids, and on the lawn were the Newfoundland dog and the man. "'Miss Minnie is not down yet, gentlemen,' said the blushing portress, as they all came together in the garden. Then she said to the master of the dog, "'Mr. Clennam, sir,' and tripped away. "'Odd enough, Mr. Clennam, that we should have met just now,' said the man, upon which the dog became mute. "'Allow me to introduce myself. Henry Gowan. A pretty place, this. Looks wonderfully well this morning.' The manner was easy and the voice agreeable, but still Clennam thought that if he had not made that decided resolution to avoid falling in love with Pet, he would have taken a dislike to this Henry Gowan. "'It's new to you, I believe.' said this gown when Arthur had extolled the place. "'Quite new. I made acquaintance with it only yesterday afternoon. Ah, of course, this is not its best aspect. It used to look charming in the spring before they went away last time. I should like you to have seen it, then.' But for that resolution, so often recalled, Clennam might have wished him in the crater of Mount Etna, in return for his civility. "'I have had the pleasure of seeing it under many circumstances during the last three years, and it's a paradise.' It was, at least it might have been, or was accepting for that wise resolution, like his dexterous impudence to call it a paradise. He only called it a paradise because he first saw her coming, and so made her out, within her hearing, to be an angel. Confusion to him. And, ah, how beaming she looked, and how glad! How she caressed the dog, and how the dog knew her! How expressive that heightened colour in her face, that fluttered manner, her downcast eyes, her irresolute happiness! When had Clennam seen her look like this? Not that there was any reason why he might, could, would, or should have ever seen her look like this, or that he had ever hoped for himself to see her look like this. But still— when had he ever known her do it? He stood at a little distance from them. This gown, when he had talked about a paradise, had gone up to her and taken her hand. The dog had put his great paws on her arm and laid his head against her dear bosom. She had laughed and welcomed them, and made far too much of the dog—far, far too much—that is to say, supposing there had been any third person looking on who loved her. She disengaged herself now, and came to Clennam, and put her hand in his, and wished him good morning, and gracefully made as if she would take his arm, and be escorted into the house. To this Gowan had no objection. No, he knew he was too safe. There was a passing cloud on Mr. Meagles's good-humoured face, when they all three—four, counting the dog, and he was the most objectionable but one of the party—came in to breakfast. Neither it, nor the touch of uneasiness on Mrs. Meagles, as she directed her eyes towards it, was unobserved by Clennam. "'Well, Gowan,' 
said Mr. Meagles, even suppressing a sigh, "'how goes the world with you this morning?' "'Much as usual, sir. Lion and I, being determined not to waste anything of our weekly visit, turned out early and came over from Kingston, my present headquarters, when I am making a sketch or two. Then he told how he had met Mr. Clennam at the ferry, and they had come over together. "'Mrs. Gowan is well, Henry,' said Mrs. Meagles. Clennam became attentive. "'My mother is quite well, thank you.' Clennam became inattentive. "'I have taken the liberty of making an addition to your family dinner-party to-day, which I hope will not be inconvenient to you or Mr. Meagles. I couldn't very well get out of it,' he explained, turning to the latter. "'The young fellow wrote to propose himself to me, and as he is well connected, I thought you would not object to my transferring him here.' "'Who is the young fellow?' asked Mr. Meagles, with peculiar complacency. "'He is one of the barnacles.' tight barnacle son clarence barnacle who is in his father's department i can at least guarantee that the river shall not suffer from his visit he won't set it on fire ay ay said mr meagles a barnacle is he we know something of that family eh dan by george they are at the top of the tree though let me see what relation will this young fellow be to lord decimus now his lordship married in seventeen ninety seven lady jemima bilberry who was the second daughter by the third marriage no no there i am wrong that was lady seraphina lady jemima was the first daughter by the second marriage of the fifteenth earl of stiltstalking with the honourable clementina tooslem very well now this young fellow's father married a stiltstalking and his father married his cousin who was a barnacle the father of that father who married a barnacle married a joddleby i am getting a little too far back gowan i want to make out what relation this young fellow is to lord decimus that's easily stated his father is nephew to lord decimus nephew to lord decimus mr meagles luxuriously repeated with his eyes shut that he might have nothing to distract him from the full flavour of the genealogical tree. "'By George, you are right, Gowan. So he is. Consequently, Lord Decimus is his great-uncle.' "'But stop a bit,' said Mr. Meagles, opening his eyes with a fresh discovery. "'Then, on the mother's side, Lady Stillstalking is his great-aunt.' "'Of course she is.' ay 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 said mr meagles with much interest indeed indeed we shall be glad to see him we'll entertain him as well as we can in our humble way and we shall not starve him i hope at all events in the beginning of this dialogue clennam had expected some great harmless outburst from mr meagles like that which had made him burst out of the circumlocution office holding Doyce by the collar. But his good friend had a weakness, which none of us need go into the next street to find, and which no amount of circumlocution experience could long subdue in him. Clennam looked at Doyce, but Doyce knew all about it beforehand, and looked at his plate, 
and made no sign, and said no word. "'I am much obliged to you,' said Gowan, to conclude the subject. "'Clarence is a great ass, but he is one of the dearest and best fellows that ever lived.' It appeared, before the breakfast was over, that everybody whom this Gowan knew was either more or less of an ass, or more or less of a knave, but was, notwithstanding, the most lovable, the most engaging, the simplest, truest, kindest, dearest, best fellow that ever lived. The process by which this unvarying result was attained, whatever the premises might have been stated by Mr. Henry Gowan thus, I claim to be always book-keeping, with a peculiar nicety in every man's case, and posting up a careful little account of good and evil with him. I do this so conscientiously, that I am happy to tell you I find the most worthless of men to be the dearest old fellow too, and I am in a condition to make the gratifying report that there is much less difference than you are inclined to suppose between an honest man and a scoundrel. The effect of this cheering discovery happened to be that while he seemed to be scrupulously finding good in most men, he did in reality lower it where it was, and set it up where it was not but that was its only disagreeable or dangerous feature. It scarcely seemed, however, to afford Mr. Meagles as much satisfaction as the barnacle genealogy had done. The cloud that Clennam had never seen upon his face before that morning frequently overcast it again, and there was the same shadow of uneasy observation of him on the comely face of his wife. More than once or twice, when Pet caressed the dog, it appeared to Clennam that her father was unhappy in seeing her do it, and, in one particular instance, when Gowan stood on the other side of the dog, and bent his head at the same time, Arthur fancied that he saw tears rise to Mr. Meagles's eyes, as he hurried out of the room. It was either the fact, too, or he fancied further, that Pet herself was not insensible to these little incidents, that she tried, with a more delicate affection than usual, to express to her good father how much she loved him, that it was on this account that she fell behind the rest, both as they went to church and as they returned from it and took his arm. He could not have sworn but that as he walked alone in the garden afterwards, he had an instantaneous glimpse of her in her father's room, clinging to both her parents with the greatest tenderness, and weeping on her father's shoulder. The latter part of the day turning out wet, they were fain to keep the house, look over Mr. Meagles's collection, and beguile the time with conversation. This gown had plenty to say for himself, and said it in an off-hand and amusing manner. He appeared to be an artist by profession, and to have been at Rome some time. Yet he had a slight, careless, amateur way with him, a perceptible limp, both in his devotion to art and his attainments, which Clennam could scarcely understand. He applied to Daniel Doyce for help, as they stood together, looking out of window. "'You know Mr. Gowan,' he said in a low voice. "'I have seen him here. Comes here every Sunday when they are at home.' "'An artist, I infer from what he says.' "'A sort of one,' said Daniel Doyce, in a surly tone. "'What sort of a one?' asked Clennam, with a smile. "'Why, he has sauntered into the arts at leisurely pall pace,' said Doyce, "'and I doubt if they care to be taken quite so coolly.' 
Pursuing his inquiries, Clennam found that the Gowan family were a very distant ramification of the Barnacles, and that the paternal Gowan, originally attached to a legation abroad, had been pensioned off as a commissioner of nothing particular somewhere or other, and had died at his post with his drawn salary in his hand, nobly defending it to the last extremity. In consideration of this eminent public service, the Barnacle then in power had recommended the Crown to bestow a pension of two or three hundred a year on his widow, to which the next Barnacle in power had added certain shady and sedate apartments in the palaces at Hampton Court, where the old lady still lived, deploring the degeneracy of the times in company with several other old ladies of both sexes. Her son, Mr. Henry Gowan, inheriting from his father the commissioner that very questionable help in life, a very small independence, had been difficult to settle. The rather, as public appointments chanced to be scarce, and his genius during his earlier manhood was of that exclusively agricultural character which applies itself to the cultivation of wild oats, at last he had declared that he would become a painter partly because he had always had an idle knack that way, and partly to grieve the souls of the barnacles-in-chief, who had not provided for him. So it had come to pass successively, first, that several distinguished ladies had been frightfully shocked, then that portfolios of his performance had been handed about o' nights, and declared with ecstasy to be perfect clauds, perfect sipes, perfect phenomena, then that Lord Decimus had bought his picture and had asked the President and Council to dinner at a blow, and had said, with his own magnificent gravity, "'Do you know, there appears to me to be really immense merit in that work?' And, in short, that people of condition had absolutely taken pains to bring him into fashion. But somehow it had all failed. The prejudiced public had stood out against it obstinately. They had determined not to admire Lord Decimus's picture. They had determined to believe that in every service, except their own, a man must qualify himself by striving early and late, and by working heart and soul, might and main. So now Mr. Gowan, like that worn-out old coffin, which never was Mahomet's, nor anybody else's, hung midway between two points, jaundiced and jealous as to the one he had left, jaundiced and jealous as to the other, that he couldn't reach. Such was the substance of Clennam's discoveries concerning him, made that rainy Sunday afternoon and afterwards. About an hour or so after dinner-time, young Barnacle appeared, attended by his eyeglass, in honour of whose family connections Mr. Meagles had cashiered the pretty parlour-maids for the day, and had placed on duty in their stead two dingy men. Young Barnacle was, in the last degree, amazed and disconcerted at sight of Arthur, and had murmured involuntarily, "'Look here! Upon my soul, you know!' before his presence of mind returned. Even then he was obliged to embrace the earliest opportunity of taking his friend into a window, and saying, in a nasal way that was a part of his general debility, "'I want to speak to you, Gowan. I say, look here! Who is that fellow?' "'A friend of our host's. None of mine.' "'He is a most voracious radical, you know,' said young Barnacle. "'Is he? How do you know?' "'He God, sir. He was pitching into our people the other day, in a most tremendous manner. 
went up to our place and pitched into my father to that extent that it was necessary to order him out came back to our department and pitched into me look here you never saw such a fellow what did he want he got sir returned young barnacle he said he wanted to know you know pervaded our department without an appointment and said he wanted to know the stare of indignant wonder with which young barnacle accompanied this disclosure would have strained his eyes injuriously but for the opportune relief of dinner mr meagles who had been extremely solicitous to know how his uncle and aunt were begged him to conduct mrs meagles to the dining-room and when he sat on mrs meagles's right hand mr meagles looked as gratified as if his whole family were there all the natural charm of the previous day was gone the eaters of the dinner like the dinner itself were lukewarm insipid overdone and all owing to this poor little dull young barnacle conversationless at any time he was now the victim of a weakness special to the occasion and solely referable to clennam he was under a pressing and continual necessity of looking at that gentleman which occasioned his eyeglass to get into his soup into his wine-glass into mrs meagles's plate to hang down his back like a bell-rope and be several times disgracefully restored to his bosom by one of the dingy men weakened in mind by his frequent losses of this instrument and its determination not to stick in his eye and more and more enfeebled in intellect every time he looked at the mysterious clennam he applied spoons to his eyes forks and other foreign matters connected with the furniture of the dinner-table his discovery of these mistakes greatly increased his difficulties but never released him from the necessity of looking at clennam and whenever clennam spoke this ill-starred young man was clearly seized with a dread that he was coming by some artful device round to that point of wanting to know you know it may be questioned therefore whether any one but mr meagles had much enjoyment of the time mr meagles however thoroughly enjoyed young barnacle as a mere flask of the golden water in the tail became a full fountain when it was poured out so mr meagles seemed to feel that this small spice of barnacle imparted to his table the flavour of the whole family tree in its presence his frank fine genuine qualities paled he was not so easy he was not so natural he was striving after something that did not belong to him he was not himself what a strange peculiarity on the part of mr meagles and where should we find another such case at last the wet sunday wore itself out in a wet night and young barnacle went home in a cab feebly smoking and the objectionable gowan went away on foot accompanied by the objectionable dog pet had taken the most amiable pains all day to be friendly with clennam but clennam had been a little reserved since breakfast that is to say would have been if he had loved her when he had gone down to his own room and had again thrown himself into the chair by the fire mr doyce knocked at the door candle in hand to ask him how and what hour he proposed returning on the morrow after settling this question he said a word to mr doyce about this gowan who would have run in his head a good deal if he had been his rival those are not good prospects for a painter said clennam no returned doyce mr doyce stood chamber candlestick in hand the other hand in his pocket looking hard at the flame of his candle 
with a certain quiet perception in his face that they were going to say something more. "'I thought our good friend a little changed, and out of spirits, after he came this morning,' said Clennam. "'Yes,' returned Doyce. "'But not his daughter,' said Clennam. "'No,' said Doyce. There was a pause on both sides. Mr. Doyce, still looking at the flame of his candle, slowly resumed, "'The truth is, he has twice taken his daughter abroad, in the hope of separating her from Mr. Gowan. He rather thinks she is disposed to like him, and he has painful doubts. I quite agree with him, as I dare say you do, of the hopefulness of such a marriage.' "'There,' Clennam choked, and coughed, and stopped. "'Yes, you have taken a cold,' said Daniel Doyce, but without looking at him. "'There is an engagement between them, of course,' said Clennam, airily. "'No, as I am told, certainly not. It has been solicited on the gentleman's part, but none has been made.' Since their recent return, our friend has yielded to a weekly visit, but that is the utmost. Minnie would not deceive her father and mother. You have travelled with them, and I believe you know what a bond there is among them, extending even beyond this present life. All that there is between Miss Minnie and Mr. Gowan, I have no doubt we see. Ah, we see enough cried Arthur. Mr. Doyce wished him good-night, in the tone of a man who had heard a mournful, not to say despairing, exclamation, and who sought to infuse some encouragement and hope into the mind of the person by whom it had been uttered. Such tone was probably a part of his oddity, as one of a crotchety band, for how could he have heard anything of that kind, without Clennam's hearing it too? The rain fell heavily on the roof, and pattered on the ground, and dripped among the evergreens and the leafless branches of the trees, the rain fell heavily, drearily. It was a night of tears. If Clennam had not decided against falling in love with Pet, if he had had the weakness to do it, if he had, little by little, persuaded himself to set all the earnestness of his nature, all the might of his hope, and all the wealth of his matured character on that cast, if he had done this, and found that all was lost, he would have been that night unutterably miserable. As it was, as it was, the rain fell heavily, drearily. End of Book One, Chapter Seventeen Book One Chapter Eighteen of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book One, Poverty, Chapter Eighteen, Little Dorrit's Lover. Little Dorrit had not attained her twenty-second birthday without finding a lover, even in the shallow Marshalsea the ever-young archer shot off a few featherless arrows now and then from a mouldy bow, and winged a collegian or two. Little Dorrit's lover, however, was not a collegian. He was the sentimental son of a turnkey. 
His father hoped, in the fullness of time, to leave him the inheritance of an unstained key, and had from his early youth familiarised him with the duties of his office, and with an ambition to retain the prison-lock in the family. While the succession was yet in abeyance, he assisted his mother in the conduct of a snug tobacco-business round the corner of Horsemonger Lane, his father being a non-resident turnkey, which could usually command a neat connection within the college walls. Years agone, when the object of his affections was wont to sit in her little armchair by the high lodge-fender, young John, family name Chivery, a year older than herself, had eyed her with admiring wonder. When he had played with her in the yard, his favourite game had been to counterfeit locking her up in corners, and to counterfeit letting her out for real kisses. When he grew tall enough to peep through the keyhole of the great lock of the main door, he had divers times set down his father's dinner, or supper, to get on as it might on the outer side thereof, while he stood taking cold in one eye by dint of peeping at her through that airy perspective. If young John had ever slackened in his truth, in the less penetrable days of his boyhood, when youth is prone to wear its boots unlaced, and is happily unconscious of digestive organs, he had soon strung it up again, and screwed it tight. At nineteen his hand had inscribed in chalk on that part of the wall which fronted her lodgings on the occasion of her birthday, "'Welcome, sweet nursling of the fairies!' At twenty-three, the same hand falteringly presented cigars on Sundays to the father of the Marshalsea, and the father of the Queen of his soul. Young John was small of stature, with rather weak legs, very weak light hair. One of his eyes, perhaps the eye that used to peep through the keyhole, was also weak, and looked larger than the other, as if it couldn't collect itself. Young John was gentle likewise, but he was great of soul, poetical, expansive, faithful. Though too humble before the ruler of his heart to be sanguine, young John had considered the object of his attachment in all its lights and shades. Following it out to blissful results, he had descried, without self-commendation, a fitness in it. Say things prospered, and they were united. She, the child of the Marshalsea, he, the lock-keeper. There was a fitness in that. Say he became a resident turnkey she would officially succeed to the chamber she had rented so long. There was a beautiful propriety in that. It looked over the wall, if you stood on tiptoe, and, with a trellis-work of scarlet beans and a canary or so, would become a very arbour. There was a charming idea in that. Then, being all in all to one another, there was even an appropriate grace in the lock. With the world shut out, except that part of it which would be shut in, with its troubles and disturbances only known to them by hearsay, as they would be described by the pilgrims tarrying with them on their way to the insolvent shrine. With the arbour above, and the lodge below, they would glide down the stream of time in pastoral domestic happiness. Young John drew tears from his eyes by finishing the picture with a tombstone in the adjoining churchyard, close against the prison wall, bearing the following touching inscription sacred to the memory of John Chivery, sixty years turnkey, and fifty years head turnkey, of the neighbouring Marshalsea, who departed this life, universally respected, on the thirty-first of December, one thousand eight hundred and eighty-six, aged eighty-three years, also of his truly beloved and truly loving wife, Amy, 
whose maiden name was Dorrit, who survived his loss not quite forty-eight hours, and who breathed her last in the Marshalsea aforesaid. There she was born, there she lived, there she died. The Chivery parents were not ignorant of their son's attachment. Indeed, it had, on some exceptional occasions, thrown him into a state of mind that had impelled him to conduct himself with irascibility towards the customers, and damage the business. But they, in their turns, had worked it out to desirable conclusions. Mrs. Chivery, a prudent woman, had desired her husband to take notice that their John's prospects of the lock would certainly be strengthened by an alliance with Miss Dorrit, who had herself a kind of claim upon the college, and was much respected there. Mrs. Chivery had desired her husband to take notice that if, on the one hand, their John had means and a post of trust, on the other hand, Miss Dorrit had family, and that her, Mrs. Chivery's, sentiment was that two halves made a whole. Mrs. Chivery, speaking as a mother and not as a diplomatist, had then, from a different point of view, desired her husband to recollect that their John had never been strong and that his love had fretted and worried him enough as it was, without his being driven to do himself a mischief, as nobody couldn't say he wouldn't be if he was crossed. These arguments had so powerfully influenced the mind of Mr. Chivery, who was a man of few words, that he had on sundry Sunday mornings given his boy what he termed a lucky touch, signifying that he considered such commendation of him to good fortune preparatory to his that day declaring his passion and becoming triumphant. But young John had never taken courage to make the declaration, and it was principally on these occasions that he had returned excited to the tobacco-shop and flown at the customers. In this affair, as in every other, Little Dorrit herself was the last person considered. Her brother and sister were aware of it, and attained a sort of station by making a peg of it on which to air the miserably ragged old fiction of the family gentility. Her sister asserted the family gentility by flouting the poor swain as he loitered about the prison for glimpses of his dear. Tip asserted the family gentility, and his own, by coming out in the character of the aristocratic brother, and loftily swaggering in the little skittle-ground respecting seizures by the scruff of the neck which there were looming probabilities of some gentleman unknown executing on some little puppy not mentioned. These were not the only members of the Dorrit family who turned it to account. No, no. The father of the Marshalsea was supposed to know nothing about the matter, of course. His poor dignity could not see so low. But he took the cigars on Sundays, and was glad to get them, and sometimes even condescended to walk up and down the yard with the donor, who was proud and hopeful then, and benignantly to smoke one in his society. With no less readiness and condescension did he receive attentions from Chivery Senior, who always relinquished his armchair and newspaper to him when he came into the lodge during one of his spells of duty, and who had even mentioned to him if he would like at any time after dusk quietly to step out into the forecourt and take a look at the street, there was not much to prevent him. If he did not avail himself of this latter civility, it was only because he had lost the relish for it, inasmuch as he took everything else he could get, and would say at times, "'Extremely civil person, Chivery. Very attentive man, and very respectful. Young Chivery, too, really almost with a delicate perception of one's position here. 
a very well-conducted family indeed, the Chiveries. Their behaviour gratifies me. The devoted young John all this time regarded the family with reverence. He never dreamed of disputing their pretensions, but did homage to the miserable mumbo-jumbo they paraded. As to resenting any affront from her brother, he would have felt, even if he had not naturally been of a most pacific disposition, that to wag his tongue or lift his hand against that sacred gentleman would be an unhallowed act. He was sorry that his noble mind should take offence. Still, he felt the fact to be not incompatible with its nobility, and sought to propitiate and conciliate that gallant soul. Her father, a gentleman in misfortune, a gentleman of a fine spirit and courtly manners, who always bore with him, he deeply honoured. Her sister he considered somewhat vain and proud, but a young lady of infinite accomplishments who could not forget the past. It was an instinctive testimony to little Dorrit's worth, and difference from all the rest, that the poor young fellow honoured and loved her for being simply what she was. The tobacco business round the corner of Horsemonger Lane was carried out in a rural establishment one story high, which had the benefit of the air from the yards of Horsemonger Lane Jail, and the advantage of a retired walk under the wall of that pleasant establishment. The business was of too modest a character to support a life-size Highlander, but it maintained a little one, on a bracket, on the doorpost, who looked like a fallen cherub, that had found it necessary to take to a kilt. From the portal, thus decorated, one Sunday after an early dinner of baked viands, young John issued forth on his usual Sunday errand, not empty-handed, but with his offering of cigars. He was neatly attired in a plum-coloured coat, with as large a collar of black velvet as his figure could carry, a silken waistcoat bedecked with golden sprigs, a chaste neckerchief much in vogue at that time, representing a preserve of lilac pheasants on a buff ground, pantaloons so highly decorated with side-stripes that each leg was a three-stringed lute, and a hat of state very high and hard. When the prudent Mrs. Chivery perceived that, in addition to these adornments, her John carried a pair of white kid gloves, and a cane like a little finger-post, surmounted by an ivory hand, marshalling him the way that he should go, and when she saw him, in this heavy marching order, turning the corner to the right, she remarked to Mr. Chivery, who was at home at the time, that she thought she knew which way the wind blew. The collegians were entertaining a considerable number of visitors that Sunday afternoon and their father kept his room for the purpose of receiving presentations. After making the tour of the yard, little Dorrit's lover, with a hurried heart, went upstairs and knocked with his knuckles at the father's door. "'Come in, come in,' said a gracious voice. The father's voice, her father's, the marshalsea's father's. He was seated in his black velvet cap, with his newspaper, three and sixpence accidentally left on the table, and two chairs arranged, everything prepared for holding his court. "'Ah, oh, young John, how do you do? How do you do?' "'Pretty well, oh, thank you, sir. I hope you all the same.' "'Yes, John Chivery, yes, nothing to complain of.' "'I've taken the liberty, sir, of—eh?' The father of the Marshalsea always lifted up his eyebrows at this point, and became amiably distraught, and smilingly absent in mind. "'Er, uh, 
few cigars, sir. Ah, oh. for the moment, excessively surprised. Thank you, young John, thank you, but really, I am afraid I am too... No? Well, then, I will say no more about it. Put them on the mantel-shelf, if you please, young John, and sit down, sit down. You are not a stranger, John. Thank you, sir, I'm sure. M Miss... Here young John turned the great hat round and round upon his left hand, like a slowly twirling mouse-cage. "'Miss Amy, quite well, sir?' "'Yes, John, yes, very well. She is out.' "'Indeed, sir?' "'Yes, John. Miss Amy is gone for an airing. My young people all go out a good deal, but at their time of life it's natural, John.' "'Very much so, I'm sure, sir. "'An airing. "'An airing. "'Yes.' He was blandly tapping his fingers on the table, and casting his eyes up at the window. "'Amy has gone for an airing on the Iron Bridge. "'She has become quite partial to the Iron Bridge of late, "'and seems to like to walk there better than anywhere.' He returned to the conversation. "'Your father is not on duty at present, I think, John?' "'No, sir. He comes on later in the afternoon.' Another twirl of the great hat, and then young John said, rising, "'I'm afraid I must wish you good day, sir.' "'So soon. Good day, young John. Nay, nay,' with the utmost condescension, "'never mind your glove, John.' "'Shake hands with it on. You're no stranger here, you know.' Highly gratified by the kindness of his reception, young John descended the staircase. On his way down he met some collegians bringing up visitors to be presented, and at that moment Mr. Dorrit happened to call over the banisters with particular distinctness, "'Much obliged to you for your little testimonial, John.' Little Dorrit's lover very soon laid down his penny on the toll-plate of the iron bridge, and came upon it looking about him for the well-known and well-beloved figure. At first he feared she was not there, but as he walked on towards the Middlesex side, he saw her standing still, looking at the water. She was absorbed in thought, and he wondered what she might be thinking about. There were the piles of city roofs and chimneys, more free from smoke than on weekdays, and there were the distant masts and steeples. Perhaps she was thinking about them. Little Dorrit mused so long, and was so entirely preoccupied, that although her lover stood quiet for what he thought was a long time, and twice or thrice retired and came back again to the former spot, still she did not move. So, in the end, he made up his mind to go on, and seemed to come upon her casually in passing, and speak to her. The place was quiet and now or never was the time to speak to her. He walked on, and she did not appear to hear his steps until he was close upon her, when he said, "'Miss Dorrit!' She started, and fell back from him, with an expression in her face of fright, and something like dislike, that caused him unutterable dismay. She had often avoided him before, always, indeed, for a long, long while. She had turned away and glided off so often when she had seen him coming toward her, that the unfortunate young John could not think it accidental. 
but he had hoped that it might be shyness, her retiring character, her foreknowledge of the state of his heart, anything short of aversion. Now that momentary look had said, You of all people, I would rather have seen any one on earth than you. It was but a momentary look, inasmuch as she checked it, and said in her soft little voice, "'Oh, Mr. John, is it you?' But she felt what it had been, as he felt what it had been, and they stood looking at one another, equally confused. "'Miss Amy, I'm afraid I disturbed you by speaking to you.' "'Yes, rather. I—' I came here to be alone, and I thought I was. Miss Amy, I took the liberty of walking this way, because Mr. Dorrit chanced to mention, when I called upon him just now, that you—she caused him more dismay than before, by suddenly murmuring, "'Oh, father, father!' in a heart-rending tone, and turning her face away. Uh, Miss, "'Miss Amy, I hope I don't give you any uneasiness by naming Mr. Dorrit. I assure you I found him very well, and in the best of spirits, and he showed me even more than his usual kindness, being so very kind as to say that I was not a stranger there, and in all ways gratifying me very much.' To the inexpressible consternation of her lover, little Dorrit, with her hands to her averted face, and rocking herself where she stood, as if she were in pain, murmured, "'Oh, father, how can you? Oh, dear, dear father, how can you? How can you do it?' The poor fellow stood gazing at her, overflowing with sympathy, but not knowing what to make of this, until, having taken out her handkerchief and put it to her still averted face, she hurried away. At first he remained stock-still, then hurried after her. "'Miss, Miss Amy, pray, will you have the goodness to stop a moment? M Miss Amy, if it comes to that, let me go. I shall go out of my senses, if I have to think that I have driven you away like this.' His trembling voice and unfeigned earnestness brought little Dorrit to a stop. "'Oh, I don't know what to do.' she cried. I don't know what to do. To young John, who had never seen her bereft of her quiet self-command, who had seen her, from her infancy, ever so reliable and self-suppressed, there was a shock in her distress, and in having to associate himself with it as its cause, that shook him from his great hat to the pavement. He felt it necessary to explain himself. He might be misunderstood supposed to mean something, or to have done something, that had never entered into his imagination. He begged her to hear him explain himself, as the greatest favour she could show him. "'Miss, Miss Amy, I know very well that your family is far above mine. It were vain to conceal it. There never was a chivalry, a gentleman, that ever I heard of and I will not commit the meanness of making a false representation on a subject so momentous. Miss Amy, I know very well that your high-souled brother, and likewise your spirited sister, spurn me from a height. What I have to do is to respect them, to wish to be admitted to their friendship, to look up at the eminence on which they are placed from my lowlier station, 
for, whether viewed as tobacco, or viewed as a lock, I well know it is lowly, and ever wished them well and happy. There really was a genuineness in the poor fellow, and a contrast between the hardness of his hat and the softness of his heart, albeit, perhaps, of his head, too, that was moving. Little Dorrit entreated him to disparage neither himself nor his station, and, above all things, to divest himself of any idea that she supposed hers to be superior. This gave him a little comfort. "'Miss Amy,' he then stammered, "'I—I have had for a long time—ages—they seem to me—revolving ages, a hot cherished wish to say something to you. May I say it?' Little Dorrit involuntarily started from his side again, with the faintest shadow of her former look. Conquering that, she went on at great speed, half across the bridge, without replying. "'May I, Miss Amy, I but ask a question humbly. May I say it? I have been so unlucky already, in giving you pain, without having any such intentions, before the holy heavens, that there is no fear of my saying it, unless I have your leave. I can be miserable alone. I can be cut up by myself. Why should I also make miserable, and cut up, one that I would fling myself off that parapet to give half a moment's joy to? Not that that's much to do, for I'd do it for tuppence." The mournfulness of his spirits, and the gorgeousness of his appearance, might have made him ridiculous, but that his delicacy made him respectable. Little Dorrit learnt from it what to do. "'If you please, John Chivery,' she returned, trembling, but in a quiet way, "'since you are so considerate as to ask me whether you shall say any more, if you please, no.' "'Never, Miss Amy?' "'No, if you please, never.' "'Oh, Lord!' gasped young John. "'But perhaps you will let me, instead, say something to you. I want to say it earnestly, and with as plain a meaning as it is possible to express. When you think of us, John—I mean my brother and sister and me—don't think of us as being any different from the rest. For whatever we once were, which I hardly know, we ceased to be long ago, and never can be any more. It will be much better for you, and much better for others, if you will do that, instead of what you are doing now." Young John dolefully protested that he would try to bear it in mind, and would be heartily glad to do anything she wished. "'As to me,' said Little Dorrit, "'think as little of me as you can. The less, the better. When you think of me at all, John, let it only be as the child you have seen grow up in the prison with one set of duties always occupying her, as a weak, retired, contented, unprotected girl. I particularly want you to remember that when I come outside the gate, I am unprotected and solitary." He would try to do anything she wished, 
but why did Miss Amy so much want him to remember that?' "'Because,' returned Little Dorrit, "'I know I can then quite trust you not to forget to-day, and not to say any more to me. You are so generous that I know I can trust you for that, and I do, and I always will. I am going to show you at once that I fully trust you. I like this place where we are speaking, better than any place I know. Her slight colour had faded, but her lover thought he saw it coming back just then. And I may be often here. I know it is only necessary for me to tell you so, to be quite sure that you will never come here again in search of me, and I am quite sure. She might rely upon it said young John. He was a miserable wretch, but her word was more than a law for him. "'And good-bye, John,' said Little Dorrit, "'and I hope you will have a good wife one day, and be a happy man. I am sure you will deserve to be happy, and you will be, John.' As she held out her hand to him with these words, the heart that was under the waistcoat of Spriggs, mere slop-work, if the truth must be known, swelled to the size of the heart of a gentleman, and the poor common little fellow, having no room to hold it, burst into tears. "'Oh, don't cry,' said Little Dorrit, piteously. "'Don't, don't. Good-bye, John. God bless you. <laughs> Good-bye, Miss Amy.' And so he left her, first observing that she sat down on the corner of a seat, and not only rested her little hand upon the rough wall, but laid her face against it too, as if her head were heavy, and her mind was sad. It was an affecting illustration of the fallacy of human projects, to behold her lover, with the great hat pulled over his eyes, the velvet collar turned up as if it rained the plum-coloured coat buttoned to conceal the silken waistcoat of golden sprigs, and the little direction-post pointing inexorably home, creeping along by the worst back-streets, and composing, as he went, the following new inscription for a tombstone in St. George's churchyard. Here lie the mortal remains of John Chivery. Never anything worth mentioning. Who died? about the end of the year one thousand eight hundred and twenty-six, of a broken heart, requesting, with his last breath, that the word Amy might be inscribed over his ashes, which was accordingly directed to be done by his afflicted parents. End of Book One Chapter Eighteen Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then 
Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.